times. The advice was about whether or not he should start going out with a girl he'd just met. Uh, They'd met for the first time a couple of weeks before at our church's student house party that we'd both been on. And he wanted to know if he knew her well enough and how he would know if he did. And so with all the life experience and relationship wisdom of a 19-year-old, I gave him my advice. Or rather, I asked him one question, only one. I said, what's her middle name? Hey, when you've got middle names as silly as mine, you only divulge them to people you're serious about. Anyway, he said, Alexandra. I said, if you know that, then you'll be fine. Well, they're now married with two kids, and they never ask for my advice. But it's a big thing, isn't it? How do you know that you know someone? How do you really know? We worry about it with relationships, we worry about it in families, we worry about it in business, and we worry about it in our Christian lives, because how do we know that we know God? How do we know that we really know Jesus? That's the issue here, isn't it? In 1 John 2, it's actually the underlying concern behind the whole letter. You see it there in verse 3, the very start of our reading. We know that we have come to know him, that is Jesus. That's what John wants for his readers, that's what he wants for every Christian here tonight, that we would know that we know Jesus. And that means much more than knowing facts about him, which is just as well, because I'm not even sure Jesus had a middle name. No, it means gaining all the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. The sacrifice that John's just been talking about in verse 2. And those benefits, well, they just get bigger and bigger the more we think about them, like uh, inflating a balloon. Here's a balloon. So, uh, have a look. To come to know Jesus means that, verse 5, God's love is made complete in us. It means that we are in Jesus. Verse 5 there again. It means that we live in him. Verse 6. It means being in the light. Verses 9 and 10. It's a wonderful relationship, isn't it? Where we're united to Christ, our identity is found in him, and our future is secured by him. So click over to chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. (laughs) Ultimately, to know that we have come to know Jesus is to know that we have eternal life. (sighs) Not to doubt it, not to move away from it, not to be swayed by those who try to undermine it. Certainty of eternal life and confident joy. That's the title of this series. There we go. They're all available to us. If we not only know Jesus, but know that we know him. And how can we know that? Well, back to chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Could have gone worse, but I got away with it. Doesn't, doesn't it seem like a letdown? We've built up this wonderful picture of confidence and assurance of the benefits of knowing Jesus and now has it been taken away from us? For none of us can claim to obey Jesus' commands as we should. John has only just been saying that if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves. Well no, if that's our reaction when we read these verses then we haven't understood them and we will never understand 1 John 2. If you are a Christian here tonight and you 
You can read this passage, you can leave here tonight less sure of your salvation. Well, then we haven't got to grips with what John is saying. Now, he's writing this to give assurance, not to undermine it. And so we need to understand his words. We need to understand them in the context of the false teaching that had come into the church that was making people unsure of their faith. We need to know why they were unsure. Unsure of their future with God. Because when we understand that, well, we'll see why these verses give us great confidence today. So briefly, there were two main aspects of the false teaching. The first was a claim to true knowledge of God that came not through trust in Jesus, but rather through special insight and mystical experience. That was the first aspect. The second was this. It was to make a strong distinction between the spiritual world, good, and the physical world, bad. How did that show itself? Well, amongst other things, it meant that a false teacher could say to the believer, you're a second-class Christian, if that. There you are wasting your time and effort worrying about the things you do. Don't you realise that God isn't interested in those sorts of things? He's a different kind of being to us. He is spirit. And so we need to rise up to the spiritual world. You need to experience God, not, not obey him. I wonder if that sort of false teaching isn't rather contemporary for us. For there are many voices that would say to us, uh, your Christian life is on a lower plane than it should be. Why are you caught up in the daily drudgery of following Jesus when you're missing out on the wonder of experiencing true intimacy with him? An intimacy which this latest book or this latest music, this latest church movement can offer you. When you have that, you'll have certainty. Or perhaps we hear it like this. It's fine for you to be a Christian, but don't take it so seriously. Have God in your life if that's what you want. But he shouldn't affect the way that you live. He's not going to mind what you do in your life. Look at all the Christians out there who don't make such a big deal about it. Why can't you be like them? See, one says you're so busy obeying that you're missing out on knowing God. The other says, well, you can still know God without being nearly as committed to obeying him as you are. And to both, John says, no. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Do you see? And so he lays down for us in this letter grounds for confidence. So far we've seen confidence because of the person of Jesus. That's 1, 1 to 4. God in the flesh. We see grounds for confidence because of the work of Jesus, 1, 5 to 2, 2, providing sacrifice for sin, our advocate at the Father's side, saying, no, he is forgiven, she is forgiven. And then in our passage today, we see two further grounds for confidence. We are to have confidence because you obey God's word and have confidence because you love God's people. So, first, have confidence because you obey God's word. Look again at verse 3 there. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. 
Well, now, it shouldn't need to be said, should it? But let's make sure we notice the tense of the verb there in verse 3. It does not say, we know that we will come to know him if we obey his commands. No, it says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And there is a world of difference, isn't there? It's the difference between religion and Christianity because we do not obey God to try to win his favour, to try to get to know him. No, we obey him because we already know him, because he has given us his favour. And so once we know God and have had our sins forgiven, well, we start to want to live for God and to obey him. That's the first thing to note. And the second is this, that John doesn't expect us to be able to obey God perfectly before we claim to know him. That's made very clear at the end of chapter 1. If you were here last week, we looked at those verses. Sin is real and present in the life of the Christian. And in the Christian, sin is to be recognised, 1 verse 8, not claiming to be without sin. Sin is to be confessed, 1 verse 9. And sin is forgiven, 2 verses 1 to 2, as we have Jesus as our advocate and sacrifice. So, We're not talking about sinlessness here. We're not talking about perfect obedience. But we are talking about obedience. And that will mean two things. First, it will mean the desire to obey. A sign that you are a Christian is that you seek with your heart to live for God. And you want to live for God in everything you do. Even though we don't manage it, the desire is there. Or at least the desire to desire it. But second is this, that we do obey. We're not perfect, but we do obey God's words. If you are are a Christian here tonight, well then it will have made a difference. And why? Well, because that is the whole point of being a Christian. And I think is what verse 5 is saying. If anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete in him. Being a Christian is supposed to affect our lives because that is God's purpose. He is creating not a forgiven nation, but a holy nation, a people belonging to God that we may declare his praises, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Now, of course, forgiveness is the key to that, but the point of a key is that it lets you into where you want to go. I don't want to just be forgiven by God. I want to be changed by him. And that's what he wants to do. So in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And in Ezekiel 36, we hear this promise, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, obedience isn't ultimately down to me. Instead, it is a miracle of God. As his spirit changes and moves me to follow and keep God's word. That's why obedience is such a great source of confidence. Because it shows that God is in me. That I have the Holy Spirit and he is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's why to claim to be a Christian, but for it not to change your life, is to be a liar, verse 4. Because you can't stop God changing you if you are a Christian, and nor would you want to. If you are unchanged, then you are unconverted. And even the things that look like obedience 
are nothing of the sort. Because if you're keeping one of God's commands so that you fit in with the church family here or because it fits in with the way you want to live your life anyway, then that's not serving God. It's serving yourself and it's not obedience. And if you're doing good things because you want to earn God's favour, making him pleased with you, making him accept you, then that's not obeying God. It's trying to trade with him. And you should have no confidence. But if you do obey, then have confidence. I know you're not perfect, but have confidence. I know it's a struggle, but you're struggling. So have confidence. You are not a second-class Christian who is missing out. You're not taking God too seriously. You are obeying the commands of the one who made you, who knows you, who loves you, and who has forgiven you. And let's do that more and more. I came across the story this week told by the Victorian minister F.B. Mayer. And one time he had the English cricketer and missionary to China, C.T. Studd, staying with him. And he found him up late one night in his room with the light on. So he knocked on the door to see if he was okay. And Studd said he had just read the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And he said this to Mayer, I do love him. So I'm reading all his commands to check if there are any that I'm not obeying. Do we have that desire to learn and obey Jesus' commands? Often a lack of assurance is because we put a strain in our relationship with him, holding back one area of our lives. Let's obey him afresh tonight. That sign of the Spirit's work and have confidence because we obey God's words. That's the first ground. The second is this. Have confidence because you love God's people. The two are closely linked, aren't they? Because one of the Lord's most repeated words to us is that we should love one another. Indeed, in our other reading from John 13, we heard Jesus saying, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Words that John picks up on in verses 7 and 8 here. Where we see that in one sense... The command to love one another is as old as the Old Testament gets. And yet it is also new because in Jesus it's given a new depth as we're to be like him. And it's given a new urgency because verse 8, since the death and resurrection, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Which is to say that Christ reigns and we await his return. And so verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Real Christians love our fellow Christians. And if we're to be like Jesus in that, then it means to love sacrificially and indiscriminately. It's to love those who may seem unlovely to us. It means... uh, Not only those whose company that we enjoy or whose demands are going to be minimal would be the opposite of what Jesus does. He deliberately seeks out the notorious, the outcast, the poor and draws them to himself. Our willingness to love other Christians is where our claim to love God is really tested. And light and love go together in verse 10. So if I love, I live in the light of Christ and nothing will make me stumble. I can have confidence But if my heart is full of hatred, if I love myself, not others, if I don't care about the person I'm sitting next to, well then I'm in darkness 
and I'm blind to salvation. So do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope you do. I hope that you have deeper relationships with people here than you do with colleagues at work or students on your course, other kids in your class, neighbours in your street. I hope you can remember ways in which you have made sacrifices for the sake of others in the church family, not just those you like, but those you come across. No, we don't do it perfectly. We're not brilliant at it, but we do it, we try. And if you do, then have confidence, says John. Because if you're doing that, you will not stumble in your faith. You're not still in darkness when it comes to God. You're in the light. You know the truth and you're living by it. Have confidence because you love God's people. How can we know that we have come to know Jesus Perhaps you're less sure now than you were 20 minutes ago. When you apply these two tests, you realise that you don't obey God and don't seek to, and you don't love his people and don't want to. Well, if that is you, then you need to come to Jesus for forgiveness and for new life. But I guess that for most of us here, we know that we do want to obey God. You're trying to do that in your life. And you know that you have been blessed by loving relationships with fellow Christians. That you're committed to them as they are to you. And you do all that resting on that atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if so, then wipe any doubt from your mind. Do not listen to those who seek to remove your confidence. Do not think that you are missing out on the real Christian life. No, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so as we share bread and wine, remembering his death, we can do so knowing that his death was for us, that we are his, that we remain his, and that we will remain his forever. Let's pray together.